that we sit here and hear these words. May we be focused on the grace that has been poured out on us as we turn to your word for instruction. Father, uh, help our hearts to understand this, for we pray this in Christ's name. Well, um, if you have been brave enough, uh, you listen to some evangelicals weigh in on the presidential election before it took place, uh, and there were quite a, a few different takes, um, some surprising, some not so much. Uh, the ones that really struck me uh, were the ones that used the words like prophecy and prophesy. Uh, a, a number of these prophets made prophecies in regard to uh, one candidate winning the election. Um, now, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying who you think will win, uh, based on numbers, I think candidate X will win. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, these are reasonings that uh, you think will happen. They are not determinations. They're not proclamations. But it's a whole other thing to bring God into the equation and insist that God told you uh, who was going to win, uh, and then that ends up not happening. You make God out to be a liar, and you make yourself to be foolish. Now, people should probably avoid you and your ministry from that point forward. Um, but here's another problem. We take too much stock in our elected officials. As the Church of Christ, we are to live uh, quiet, peaceable lives, as, as Bruce was praying, uh, honorable lives uh, devoted to God in the grace that God gives. I don't think there's anything wrong with getting involved in political process or even supporting the ideas of, of, of candidates and, and parties. But when it feels like our hope rests in these people, I do get concerned. Look at Jude. He's writing to a tiny minority of the population. And, and what is his concern? Is it Caesar? Is it the city-state? No, his greatest concern is for the church. Jude is concerned with the people who are having an influence on the believers. C.S. Lewis was asked by Decision Magazine, which was Billy Graham's publication, Lewis was asked, did he think there was a de-Christianizing of Western culture? And Lewis replied, uh, I'm not qualified to speak of the de-Christianizing of the culture, but I am terribly concerned about the de-Christianizing of the church. And that is where we are today. We are not to be so concerned with the outside world uh, of which it may be foolish to expect great things or, or, or Christian things, but we are to be concerned with the church, which is as we have seen over the last four weeks, can be influenced by certain individuals who creep in unnoticed, perhaps if the church is too busy fighting the culture war. And so far, Jude has showed us Old Testament examples to illustrate judgment, showing us that judgment is a very real thing. We've seen the nature and the, the, the types of people that creep into the church. They defile the flesh, they reject authority, they blaspheme the glorious ones, they follow instinct rather than the Holy Spirit, 
They lead people chasing the wind like a waterless cloud, always promising, never delivering. They have no root system. There, there is no depth to what they say or teach. They have no shame and they operate without fear. They tap into what we already know and understand. What do I mean by that? We understand, as Jeremy's illustrated at the beginning of the song, we understand rebellion uh, experientially. We, we understand gratifying the flesh experientially. We understand natural instinct experientially. I remember uh, a pastor... Uh, saying at an infant baptism celebration that this child will never need to be taught how to sin. He will never need a class on disobedience. Those will come naturally. And anyone with children knows that that comes naturally. He will need to be taught obedience. And needs to be taught who Jesus is and what he has done. He will need to be taught the law and grace. He will need to be taught what God loves and what God hates. These heretics that have infiltrated the church are merely trying to get learning people. People who are growing in wisdom and knowledge of God. To go back to what they know. To go back to their default setting. And today we're looking at prophecy. Again, Jude uh, has covered Old Testament examples to illustrate judgment on these people. And now he's showing prophecy and predictions about judgment. And not from false prophets like the ones we mentioned at the beginning. And Jude uses two sources here in these verses. uh, One old and one new. One outside of scripture canon and one from the apostles themselves. And so we read in verse 14. It was also about these, these heretics, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, why does Jude use this non-scriptural citation to make his point? Well, first of all, it's not uncommon for Scripture to do this. We see that Paul refers to uh, Janus and Jambres in in 2 Timothy as the names of the magicians uh, that stood against Moses in the Exodus, which was from Jewish tradition. It's not a scriptural citation. Uh, In Acts 17, Paul cites a uh, 7th century B.C. poet. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uses a line from a Greek writer to make his point. The idea is that All truth is Christ's truth, and these things can be used to illustrate a point for people without the work being cited as uh, inspired. So why does Jude use this one? Why does he use Enoch? Could he not have just cited Jesus from Matthew chapter 13, where he says, The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. 
In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. I wonder if it has to do with how far back the reference goes. As if to imply that judgment of the wicked is not a new and novel concept. It's not a New Testament concept. It has been a reality since the beginning. As early as Genesis 5, where we read of Enoch, the man who was taken up to God. He never saw death from an earthly sense. Even he, seeing through the the telescope of time, so to speak, was able to see the finality of mankind. Showing us, too, the idea of final judgment was known and recognized in his day. Or in Noah's day. When people were continually sinning and couldn't stop, essentially. right? So it's not a new concept. The people in Noah's days would have known the truth, they would have known righteousness, they would have known God's character. There are also two words that are repeated with great frequency uh, in these verses, if you've picked up on that. The word all and the word ungodly. What is that all about? The Lord comes to execute judgment on all. This is the judgment of the wicked, uh, obviously with the repetition of the term ungodly used over and over and over. It's not the judgment of the believers which determines standing and position in heaven, but the judgment on all the ungodly. The original word here is a term uh, that is used in other contexts to show someone his sin and to summon him to repentance. But in judicial contexts, this rebuke condemns. It no longer serves an educative purpose. It is final. It is absolute. It is, in other words, too late. In the judgment, the true character of these heretics will be brought to light. Jude appears to hold no hope of redemption for them. In Christ's coming, they will be judged and condemned. There is no escape from the light of Christ in that day. There is no argument that will hold up against it. There is no hiding or covering up in the darkness. To convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. Every deed will be judged for all of its ungodliness. But greater than that, they will be convicted or convinced that they are themselves ungodly. To be convinced of this in the presence of God and his holy angels where there will be no uh, refuge in lies or deceit to be proved by ultimate exposure to the white light of judgment of truth must be a terrible thing. When I was younger, if I uh, got in trouble, which was often, uh, but I had a good way of of deceiving or or, or telling a lie to get out of it, then then I had a little bit of confidence. I wasn't super fearful because I thought I might be able to work my way out of this. (laughs) But if the facts were clear, if a phrase like, I saw you do fill in the blank, 
uh, then I would be terrified because I knew there was no way out. I knew that the standard was there. I knew that the, 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 the testimony was there, that the truth would be completely exposed and there's nowhere to hide in my lies. And what a message to the church this is. To consider the reality we are aware of. That we have one who forgives our sins, past, present, and future. But the great importance that we take our sin to Christ, that we confess it to him, that we confess it to one another, lest we begin to think that we can hide it in deceit and lies. We can go to the gracious God who promises to forgive. We can have a free conscience, therefore, rather than a heavy laden one. What a gracious gift that is of God. Notice also that it's not the sins the ungodly have committed against their fellow man, but it is the sins that they've committed against God. Why? Because all sin against man or God is ultimately against God. It's why uh, King David cries out against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Even though he had clearly sinned against, fill in the blank, Bathsheba, Uriah, the nation. It was first and ultimately against God. And I'm afraid that we often get this backwards these days. We deal with man first. We deal with our sin against neighbor first. But how many times have you seen it move from forgiveness from man and then to God? It almost has to be the reverse. It has to be God first. Then neighbor. Because it is in the receiving of grace and forgiveness from God that we are overwhelmed and given the resources that we need to go to our neighbor for forgiveness. Because we understand forgiveness. Well, these next verses in, in verse 16 seem less powerful than uh, the ones we've read in verse 15. But let's look at them together. Verse 16. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own, evil, uh, own uh, sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. These heretics are people who complain bitterly against God uh, and who are unsatisfied with their lot. This brings to mind the, the Israelites who were wandering in the desert and you know Jude's already mentioned them in uh, verse 5 as those who were destroyed by Jesus for their unbelief. Or, or, or the grumbling against Jesus that we read about from the religious leaders in uh, John's gospel. Ultimately, all of that grumbling is grumbling against God and his anointed. And this concept isn't even exclusive to, to, to Christianity or Judaism. Listen to what Marcus Aurelius counseled. Marcus Aurelius from the movie Gladiator. Just kidding. He was a real Roman emperor from the second century. <clears throat> Listen to what he counseled. So that you may not die grumbling, 
but mercifully and truly giving thanks to the gods from the heart. Uh, Grumbling implies a sense of having been wronged. We talk about the entitlement generation. Grumbling is not a new thing. And then malcontent implies a complaint against one's allotted circumstances. These heretics are not only driven by their desires, but they find no satisfaction in life. They are always searching and never satisfied. And it's funny because it's so similar to what they do to others. Like the waterless cloud. They promise so much and never deliver. Like that waterless cloud that, that, that never delivers the rain that it, that it promises. And you leave people chasing the wind. What a great lesson on learning satisfaction in God. For the believer to recognize and appreciate and be grateful and thankful for all that God provides. It carries weight when Jude will say in verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. For these heretics have strayed from what God provides looking for more. So they, verse 16 continues, follow their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. People who are not secure in their identity have to overcompensate. So if you have no confidence in God and in his promises, or you think that you have been wronged and you're grumbling against God and are malcontent and you think you deserve better, therefore you go searching for things that you think will satisfy you, but you're really just feeding your base instincts, your flesh desires, the very thing that Christ has set us free from or allows us to put off. And feeding those desires keeps you searching for more and more and more and more. And it's an endless highway. And the hardness that comes from that constant searching but never finding is evidenced in the arrogance of speech. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Again, even Aristotle recognized the arrogance of such a person. He says... The boaster is a man who pretends to creditable qualities that he does not possess or possesses in a lesser degree than he makes out. These are the characteristics of people in apocalyptic literature who stand against God. It's the the, the shaking of your fist at what God has dealt to you or to them and then saying, I'm going to show you, I'm going to be a self-made person. No recognition of being sovereignly created. No appreciation for the gifts and the graces God has abundantly made available or given. No willingness to be satisfied with God's love or or, or promise of eternity if you claim to be a believer. And I have to keep reminding myself as I'm going through all this, why these people stay in the church? Or rather, why Jude says that they have crept into the church? Why would these people want to be in the church. They hate the church. They clearly hate God. They hate his law. They defile what is good and right. Why are they even here? People will always be drawn to things 
of power. There is real power in the church. There is real forgiveness. There is real grace. There is real repentance. There is real authority. There is real hope. There is real joy. There is real conviction. There will always be, people are always drawn by the externals. That's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Even, even uh, in Bruce's prayer, you know, that it's our love for one another and people would be drawn to that, that it would look so different from the outside world that they would be drawn to that. That's a good thing. But when some people are confronted with the whole truth, instead of having a heart that is broken and says that they want to be reborn, they decide that they know better. And so they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. As 2 Peter chapter 2 says. The problem again as Jude has to write this letter is that these people are not always immediately obvious. So believers must be careful to, uh, as we do the things that we do as a body of believers. And we said this last week. Part of the problem is that we are called as believers to be honest and open with one another. That we might grow in grace and knowledge. But at the same time, we have to be alert and aware of those that creep into the community. For here's another reason. They show favoritism to gain advantage. They seek their own advantage financially, materially, um, an advantage in influence, any advantage. And they prey on people by showing favoritism. How susceptible we are when it comes to people showing us favoritism. I read an illustration um, of uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, and, who was a, a physician and a writer, uh, wrote during um, the Civil War, and, and his brother John. And they had two different views on favoritism or flattery. Dr. Holmes uh, loved to collect compliments, and when he was older, if someone complimented his work, he would say, I'm a trifle deaf. Do you mind repeating that louder? His brother John, on the other hand, was content in his brother's shadow. He once said the only compliment he ever received was when he was six. The maid brushing his hair told his mother that John wasn't all that cross-eyed. <clears throat> I think even in the remembering of that compliment shows that his character is that he would like someone to show him favoritism because that is our nature as human beings. And I have seen these types that come into the churches and they are excellent at their craft. There's no righteous motivation whatsoever, but sadly, many believers are duped by this because we all love favoritism. Beware the person who laughs at all your jokes. That's why I don't worry about you guys. I don't laugh at any of my jokes. Jude wants the church to have nothing to do with these people whom even the apostles predicted would come. And so now we turn to the more recent prediction prophecy. But you must remember, beloved... The predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, they said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. 
Jude's purpose has not been merely to inform his readers of the heretics' error and their end, but especially to persuade the beloved to have nothing to do with them in their ways, which he will explicitly cover in our section for next week. Just as judgment has been decreed since ancient times, so also the apostles have prophesied about their coming. Now, a few notes uh, here on this last section. Uh, This should come as no surprise. Uh, The prophecy made from Enoch, the prediction made by the apostles, it has all, uh, it's been known, it's been expected, Uh, It does not mean God was unaware or remains powerless to it. It is rather that they were expected and anticipated. And that is why God gives warning and prophecy so that we, the church, are equipped and not caught off guard by it. Jude says, you must remember. Then what does Jude mean by last times? What is this phrase? Did you think his days were the last times? The term signifies the time and any time after Christ's incarnation, uh, which inaugurated the last times, uh, and obviously before his second coming. So these days we live in now are the last times. And if Christ hasn't come in a thousand years, those will still be the last times. Scoffers will come. They mock especially the moral law of God, and the certainty of divine punishment on the disobedient. In fact, Paul told Timothy to anticipate people's increasing self-centeredness and self-indulgence, hypocrisy, and false teaching as the last days progressed. These people cause divisions. Unity comes from the Spirit. And Jude says, these people are without the Spirit. They were arrogant, as as we looked at earlier. That would cause division, arrogance. They were grumblers and malcontents. That would cause division. Uh, They showed favoritism, not to all, but to some. You know that that causes division. And division in the church is not a healthy church. And so they must be put out. They are worldly people, they are not true believers, and they have shown themselves as such, as as, uh, he shows in verse 10, the blaspheming what they did not understand, led by their instincts rather than the Spirit. And yet, once again, the challenge is that they don't come in uh, parading themselves as outsiders, but rather they say they are insiders and they say they are part of the community. And the frightening thing is that they were in part successful. Otherwise, Jude would have written instead about our common salvation. I pray that we would read through these passages and not just say, "Ooh, how terrible. But that we might say, praise God. Lord, thank you for the things that are opposite of what these heretics chase after. And so we work our way backwards from 19 to 14 through these verses. They are devoid of the Spirit. Thank you for the unity of the Spirit, Lord. They are worldly people. 
praise you that we were rescued from being worldly people and have been won into the kingdom of your son, Jesus Christ. They cause division. Thank you that we are not marked by division, but unity in your spirit. They scoff following their ungodly uh, passions. Thank you for the freedom that Christ offers us in our not having to surrender to ungodly passions. Thank you for your moral law, which shows your character and your nature, which reminds us of our failure, but also our salvation in Christ. May we never take that for granted uh, so that we can gratify the flesh. They show favoritism to some to gain advantage. Thank you that we are called to love the body, the family of God, regardless of race or social status or financial status, that we show favoritism to all because we are all your children. They are loudmouth boasters full of self. Thank you for the confidence that we have in Christ, that we are not full of self, but filled with Christ, that we don't have to be loudmouth boasters because we are secure in who we are and we are secure in him. Thank you for the blessing that you have poured uh, in over in abundance that we would always have a thankful heart, that we would have no need for grumbling and malcontentedness because we have Christ and Christ has us. May we see that as the greatest good of our lives. Praise you for Jesus who took on the punishment we deserve so that we do not face eternal judgment separated from you as ungodly and children of wrath, but as children of God, we inherit eternal life. May we live our lives allowing the light that will penetrate the darkness in the last day to do his work in us in the revealing of sin in our lives so that we may repent and confess it to you, looking forward with great anticipation for the day that Enoch saw coming rather than denying it, rather than fearing it. That's our prayer. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for the truths that you hold to us, the, the, the truths that you have made real. Father, we're grateful that we can gather together as a body and sit under the authority of the word and allow it to speak into our lives. And in places where we, where we don't physically see you, we know your character and we know truth because it's been made evident in your word and we've felt the effects and we believe it in our hearts to be true. And so we ask that your spirit would minister to us during times of doubt, that we would not fall to the wayside as some of these heretics that do sneak into the body of believers would desire us to do that we wouldn't be focused on gratifying the flesh. That we wouldn't be focused on what we don't have, but that we would be abundantly grateful for what we do have. That we have Christ. That we have life in Him. And that you've given us a, a body of believers to equip and encourage one another in that. That we would have the, the uh, audacity to be vulnerable with one another. 
so that we continue to grow in faith. True growth, not artificial growth. Father, my prayer is that we would be such loving, caring, uh, 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 grateful, thankful people so that if someone from that uh, heretical thinking were to come into the community, they would be so obviously apparent of the direction that they seek to take people. That there would be correction. Oh, Father, that we would be these people. But we can't do that without your work in our lives and without our allowing you to work in our lives. So, Father, give us broken spirits to be built up back into you, that our identity would be so strong in you that we would have no doubt, no fear. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and refresh one another by singing the gospel.